How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. I'm your host today, and uh, with me is Ethan McDaniel. Hello. He's a fellow archaeology student and a history enthusiast, just like me, and today we're going to be talking about civilization, symbolism, and mythology. And uh, this is a topic that uh, we really just got motivated to do through uh, sitting at the, a lunch table and uh, talking about it. So yeah. I'm, looking, uh, I'm looking forward to sharing this episode with you guys, and it uh, should be a good one. But before we begin, I'd like to remind you guys that you can check our Facebook and Twitter pages for more information on the episodes, as well as to ask questions and stay up to date on information concerning the podcast. We also have a community page for more information and interact with the podcast, and we're also in the development of a Patreon-only Discord server for more direct interaction with the podcast. Don't forget to show your support for this podcast by donating on Anchor and or our Patreon page, which gives you exclusive access to bonus content and more for as little as $3 a month. You can also support by joining the community page and sharing any historical information you come across. And then in the end, we're going to give some shout-outs to those of you guys who have liked and been following our social media platforms, and uh, we thank you for the growth that it's already been experiencing. So don't forget to like, follow, comment, and even write a review on any of our podcast platforms as we really appreciate listener interaction. All right. Like I said, today we're going to be doing an episode on civilization, symbolism, and mythology. We're going to be talking about how the past and cultural development has influenced mythology as well as religion and where we see it today. So uh, with all that being said, ready to hop into the episode, Ethan? Yep. Awesome. Looking forward to it. All right, so as civilization, symbology, and mythology cover a whole lot of subjects, <laughs> and uh, the, with such a broad title, I mean, I guess the first question is where do you want to start? Um, well, the one that I'm most knowledgeable about is probably Greek um, or Norse kind of Greek and Norse mythology. mythology. Um, a lot of the Greek and Norse are some of the more prevalent ones that have more of a tie into actual history. Um, whereas, of course, the difference between myth and history is just that history is myth with proven evidence. Right, yeah, I think myth is heavily just history that we haven't discovered the origins of yet. Because I do think that mythology and a lot of religions do have a basis in fact, yet some of that fact might have been distorted, changed over time. And uh, I think it's still there, but it's a continual search to try to find that original origin. And so. A lot of that stuff is uh, things we're going to be covering today. We're going to be covering uh, some just some basic stories throughout the world mythologies and uh, connecting those with uh, some of the symbolism and stuff that we see in the world today. So, uh, you said you wanted to start with Greek. Uh, you mentioned something about the, the Cyclops before we did this episode, so yeah. uh, um, I want to share some of that. One of my favorite facts about the Cyclops is that the Greeks believed, not just the Greeks, a lot of prehistory cultures believed that the elephant skull was a um, was actually the cyclops itself. Because if you look at the picture of an elephant skull, it's depicted with tusks. Well, elephant skulls have tusks, obviously. The right. cyclops is depicted with one eye and a tusk, and two tusks. Um, elephant skulls, whenever the trunk decays and it's just the skull left, there's a giant hole in the center that ancient civilizations like Greece and Mesopotamia and that kind of stuff believed that it was a giant man rather than an elephant. Right, where the where the trunk would have been, they thought that was like the one eye of the Cyclops. Yeah, because, you know, if you're a prehistory person, an actual elephant, the skull of an elephant, look very different because the trunk's not there. Right. Um, so. 
And I mean, that makes sense because uh, we, we see that with a lot of different uh, mythological creatures even. Uh, there is a whole theory with the Kraken being based off of maybe a, a giant squid that sailors came across while uh, seafaring across the world. Yeah. And so uh, now there's a lot of connections, especially with mythological creatures, to, uh, to origins with real-life creatures like that. So I, I find that interesting for one. And I, I thought your example, the Cyclops, when you told me, I had no idea. Yeah. And I thought that's... Uh, that was really interesting that uh, that's ends up being true. So, uh, well, I mean, there's a lot we could cover with uh, with Greek mythology. That's a really good example, I think. So uh, uh, what else? We also mentioned uh, before doing the episode uh, a connection with Medusa. Oh, yeah. So Medusa is a, for those of you that don't know, is a Greek story about a woman who is a gorgon, which is the whole snake for hair lady. Um, they're depicted originally as scaled women with wings and snakes for hair. Um, the story of Medusa goes, um, Medusa was a normal woman born with her sisters being um, horrid creatures, I guess would be the proper term. But um, she was a normal human being and then became a creature through Athena's wrath because she was jealous of how pretty she was. And then she became the Gorgon and later died um, having her head cut off by a man that I can't remember the name of, Perseus? Something Perseus, like yeah, I think it was Perseus. Um, and after dying to him, he, she, um, Perseus brought his head back, her, uh, brought Medusa's head back to Athena, um, which is then depicted on her shield, and a lot of Athena's things is Medusa's head. Um, it's also said that Medusa's blood um, cause the snakes in Sahara to exist. That's why they're so venomous is because of Medusa's blood being dripped on Sahara. Yeah, right. I found that interesting. And it uh, makes you wonder if that's why the Sahara is such a hostile environment with uh, the, the, that basis in mythology. Maybe that had yeah. uh, something to do with it. Which, of course, I'm not saying that Medusa was an actual creature that existed right. and her right. blood dripped there, but it's an explanation for why these snakes exist there. Right, and that's that's what mythology is yeah. essentially is the ancient civilization's way of trying to figure out how the universe works and uh, how things came to be. That's yeah. that's essentially what mythology is and what, what it attempts to explain. So, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, another thing I found interesting uh, along with that Medusa line that you mentioned was that uh, you and a lot of the rocks you said on the island were maybe foreign because of uh, yeah. Medusa's face, and that was like the, the Greeks' way of explaining all the different rocks on that island. Yeah, which, yeah, I think things like that that explain um, different subjects, whether how weird they are, whether it be a woman who's so ugly that it turns people stone, whether or not that actually exists is not really the point. The point is that there are stones there because of it. Um, so it's just, it's neat that they use that kind of thing to tie in. Yeah, for sure. Right. Again, it's a way of explaining uh, natural phenomenon and uh, a, an attempt at trying to understand the universe again, like I said. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we could cover with Greek mythology. Another yeah. one that comes to mind is uh, even like the sirens. And this one has some connection to uh, symbolism today. Mm -hmm. So uh, which story was it? The Iliad or the Odyssey that they mentioned the uh, story of the sirens? The Odyssey is the story that Odysseus was tied to the mast. Okay. Uh, the ship. Um, but in that uh, Odysseus um, story, the Odyssey, Odysseus, after the Iliad, immediately after, both written by Homer, um, uh, males are the only ones affected by sirens, Odysseus being a male, um, decided not to shove things in his ears and instead told his crew to tie him to the mast and 
to keep him there until they got past them. But the sirens are a very interesting creature when compared to other creatures. Um, so, like, the ancient Greek sirens, rather, are scaled women, much like the Gorgon, but without snake hair. Um, they kind of just look like mermaids, and their whole point is to entice... Right, like a two-tailed mermaid. Yeah, their entire point is to entice um, ships to sail to their demise, and then they eat the um, people that swim in the ocean. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Siren song and whatnot. And I've always found that story interesting. And uh, I always find it interesting because if you actually look at uh, the Starbucks symbol today, uh, the symbol that the Starbucks logo uses is actually a siren. It's the two-tailed mermaid that's in reference to the Odysseus story and the Odyssey where uh, he was tied to the mast of the ship and uh, tried not to succumb to the, the powers of the, of the sirens. And so that's even a, even a connection with symbolism today. Yeah. So I the fact that... Uh, these ancient stories that are thousands of years old, most of them, even older than that, are still prevalent and are, are still prevalent today and, uh, and can still be found in society today is such an interesting concept that uh, the past really does influence the present. Yeah, definitely. Um, to kind of go off the Odyssey um, more some, uh, there's another example of kind of history being tied in with um, mythology with the Lotus Eaters, which are a group near the startish of the Odyssey, I think it's chapter nine or so. Um, yeah, I could be wrong about that. That might be the Cyclops. Right. But regardless, the Lotus Eaters were a group of cannibalistic tribes that lived alone on an island and ate lotus flowers. Um, lotus flowers have a lot of spiritual meaning and symbolism throughout a lot of different cultures. Um, Athena herself is a big fan of lotus. However, the lotus flower, um, historians believe, the Lotus Flower referred to in Odysseus is actually an opioid plant, um, the poppy itself. Yeah, that's um, Which resembles a lot of a actual um, poppy, or not poppy, sorry, uh, lotus. Um, so they called them the lotus eaters, and they showed symptoms of an addiction to opium. So it would kind of make sense for that to be what they were actually experiencing rather than um, just being cannibalistic lotus flower eaters. Right, and uh, there's even another connection with symbolism and uh, that being prevalent in society today with uh, the whole idea of the, the lotus flower. Because uh, if you guys know the symbol of uh, the, the Adidas logo is actually a, a lotus flower in itself. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, even Adidas himself was a Greek god. And so even that's uh, prevalent in society. And then uh, that's not the only civilization that uses lotus flower either. There's also the, the lotus position. And uh, there's a huge presence of the lotus flower in, uh, in Indian mythology or uh, Indian culture. And uh, the whole idea of the lotus position when you meditate. So I, I also find that interesting, like the diaspora of symbolism and the, yeah, yeah. the spread of that across the world. Yeah. Um, a lot of cultures have very similar aspects. So I was talking about the Cyclops earlier and with Polythemus, which is the giant that Odysseus tells him his name is nobody and blah, 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 story from Odysseus. Um, but there's a much, there's also a very, very similar story that took place in the country of Georgia, not the state, um, which is located south of modern day Russia, um, near the Black Sea, which the Black Sea and Greece, not very close. I mean, you could in theory walk there, but it's more close to say Mesopotamia or, um, an area like that so it's uh, there's a story that goes about the same route with four people being trapped with a giant one-eyed man 
who murders two of them, and then the third and fourth one managed to poke his eye out and escape through sheep. Um, that story originated originally in Georgia, which is just a little bit north of um, Mesopotamia, and it's kind of believed that the culture has kind of taken it from there and adapted the story to a more Greek setting with the Cyclops and Homer and whatnot. Um, and there are even tales of giants and similar creatures in Norse mythology, which obviously Scandinavia is very far away from Greece. Um, yeah, so. yeah, for sure. And uh, again, the diaspora of mythology and uh, the pairing of that with cultural development is super interesting. Like you mentioned, the, the Georgia reference with uh, the, the giants. There's so many other civilizations and other cultures that also use uh, the symbolism of the giants. And uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But I think uh, Native Americans also have a similar legend, and that's all the way in the Americas. And then on top of that, I believe uh, the, the Greeks use it for sure. And then uh, I also think the, the Romans and Egyptians might use it as well. Uh, I know for sure that even uh, Mesopotamia used it, which also makes sense because, again, with uh, the African diaspora uh, and the development of human culture, I re most of it started in Africa. But really, if you think about a sedentary lifestyle, and uh, the actual rise of agriculture began in Mesopotamia. So it makes sense for the origin of most of those have spread from Mesopotamia, have been changed and developed along with culture as it went to different parts of the world and uh, essentially changed certain aspects of the story, but still had the core story to, to begin with. So really, the, the diaspora doesn't just apply to uh, the human movement across the world, but also with cultural development, symbolism, mythology. And mythology, it really shows you with that diaspora the huge influence it does play on, on culture. Yeah. Um, which I, I think it's just very interesting to see that different cultures, whilst being very different, like, for instance, North mythology and Greek mythology, whilst they are very different in the actual execution, they're very similar in the ways. So you've got a set of gods, a pantheon, and then different gods do different certain things with um, also different mythological creatures that all align the same. Norse have giants, Greek have giants, uh, North ha uh, Greeks have um, like sirens and like a lot of sea-based creatures. So do the Norse, which would also make sense based off of their ways of life. Um, True. But I think it's very cool. Um, the Norse believe in a, well, of course, when I say Norse, I'm referring to Old Norse, so Viking-ish area. Right, Scandinavia. Yeah. Um, not modern day, of course. Right. Um, modern day would be paganism because they converted to Christianity shortly in the 14th century. But right. um, during the 10th or 11th century or so, a lot of Norse stuff wasn't written down, so because they were kind of foreign resources because they lived in Scandinavia, they a lot of it was oral stories. Um, and the Norse believe in a, or they used to at least believe in a system where if you die, there is a, uh, a what are they called Valkyrie that comes and takes you to either right, the yeah. realm of the god that you believe with the most. So whether that be Thor or Odin or whoever, um, or you go hang out with Freya for forever. Um, it's literally basically just a 50, 50 chance. Um, but you either have to hang out in a cool hall or a hall with Freya for forever. Um, yeah, you don't want that, <laughs> but and it, yeah, I mean, neither of them are really the worst option, but still, 
Um, but it's interesting to think about the different concepts of death and that kind of stuff in different cultures. Right, right. Um, the Greeks believe in Hades with Tartarus and Asphodel and Elysium, whereas the Egyptians believe in the... Um, what is it the Egyptians believe? It's like an eternal journey after you die from uh, going along... I think it's the River Styx, actually. Yeah, it is the River Styx. That's based Sticks. on the Egyptian... Or, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Oh, well, yeah, Egyptian yeah. and Greek legend both yeah, use the river Styx. Yeah, because in Greek, they believe in Charon, the boatmaster, who takes um, coins right. from you, and then you ride along the river Styx to get to Hades. And that's a very similar story with uh, Egyptian mythology, the idea that you take this boat across, uh, across the river Styx to, uh, to have your soul weighed against the feather of truth to see if you're worthy or not to uh, live eternally. Yeah. And so that's even why uh, a lot of hieroglyphics and stuff were carved on the walls of tombs because they were spells that were meant to protect the the, the pharaoh or whoever was buried in that tomb in the afterlife and following that journey along the river Styx. So it's interesting to see how both Egyptian and Greek have a very similar legend in the, in the afterlife and uh, yeah. the idea that they both involve the river Styx and uh, taking a boat to uh, achieve eternal life, essentially. Which every culture, religion, whatever, has some sort of thing after death. Um, right. It would be a lot harder to accept that there's nothing after death than, say, sitting in a hell-like place for forever. Right. Um, and I think that's why a lot of those legends yeah. develop, too, because they want to see that comfort, yeah. um, that there is something after death. Yeah. Even if you're going into the realm of Hades, where whether or not you're stuck in Tartarus, Asphodel, or Elysium... Um, it's just there's lots of different things that can happen. One thing that I like about Greek, whilst in like Christianity, you have heaven and hell, hell being right. considered bad, heaven considered good, based off of what your you know what yeah. your actions were when you were alive. Actually, in um, Greek mythology, everyone goes to Hades. You everyone goes to Hades domain. That's he's he's the Lord of the Dead. Um, but you can go to different places. So if you're very, very, very bad and you need to be in prison for forever, you go to Tartarus. Um, Tartarus is actually like the deepest part of Hades yes. where all the, um, the Titans were locked up. Yeah. The, I was going to say the Titans were locked up there. Kronos. Um, that's where the Furies uh, are, which are similar to Sirens, but they're um, basically just torture women. There's three of them. I right. don't remember all of them. Yeah, names. three Furies, right? Megan Ura, something like that. Um, like pull the strings of life and death. Yeah. Um, and then that's where all the people go if you need to be imprisoned for the rest of your life, or afterlife, I guess. Uh, Asphodel is where most people go. It's very full of lava and death and fire. It's the generic kind of hell. Essentially, yeah, essentially the hell that the Christians use yeah. in, their, um, in their concepts. And then you have Elysium, which is, I believe, I think it translates to like bliss or something. I could be completely wrong about that. Okay. But, um... Elysium is a realm where heroes go. So Achilles, um, Hercules, like everyone that you think about that's really cool, or they're like a battle general, typically they're always war associated. So if you were the king of Sparta and you were known for your renown in battle, you go to Elysium, which is a, similar to the, uh, the place of Valhalla where you'd right. eternally fight, drink, and have like fun or whatever it is you want to do after you die. Right, and that's even another concept right there between Valhalla yeah. and, uh, like you said. Yeah, which which ties in Norse and Greek mythology. Uh, not, not necessarily ties in, but it ties them together a little bit. Um, which it could also just be a coincidence, considering both of them were warlike. I mean, the, the Norse 
raided and pillaged the Germanic tribes during the 12th century. Right. Um, or sorry, not the Germanic, the English. Um, yeah. And obviously the Greeks were very warlike in their states. They, Sparta and Athens fought very often. A lot of the different factions fought. But um, right, I mean, it would make sense that both of those work like cultures would yeah. have a similar concept with that. So it makes sense for them to have a place after you die that you eternally fight. Right. Um, like I said, it's heavily based on the development of culture. Yeah. And like after that diaspora, after uh, most of the cultures of the world expanded out of Mesopotamia, they experienced different uh, geographical situations that ultimately influenced both their culture, but as well as their mythology. Yeah. And so I think that's really. The origin of mythology is it's heavily based on that diaspora and the culture that arose in those different parts of the world. Yeah, definitely. Um, like, for instance, once again, the Norse and the Greeks. That's my big example because it's the one I would know most about. Right. Um, the Norse, if you ever see Norse people depicted, they're wearing fur. They're wearing very thick layers of clothing. They typically have axes or weapons. If you look at Greek gods, they're typically very... Um, they have you know light clothing on. They have... Um, like, you know, they're typically more royal looking in a traditional sense than that of the, like, fierce, fierce Norse gods. Um, so once again, where you live, how you live like it, um, can affect lots of different things about your culture. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, we can touch again on like the, the concepts of like a divine heaven or hell, essentially Valhalla, very similar to then the Greek legend where all the heroes go in the afterlife. And, uh, the, also Hades. And, uh, the, if you look at a lot of cultures, they do have this concept of like a divine good or evil yeah. that are constantly in battle with each other. And, uh, based on which side you're on, uh, ultimately determines where you end up in that, in the afterlife. Yeah. I know that, um, I believe Egyptian has something like that, eternally chasing. Um, well, I know with, they explain day and night through, um, what is it, rock sailing down the river Styx, isn't it, or something like that? Right, I yeah, wrong. right. Um, the Norse have a thing with Jormungandr, which is the world serpent, um, which explains the moon, um, where Jormungandr is chasing the moon, and if he ever swallows the moon, which is believed to be an eclipse, um, then the apocalypse will happen, or rather Ragnarok, which is when all of the cool guys that have ever died come out, like that one scene from Lord of the Rings. Right. The end. Um, but yeah, I think things like that to explain modern like things. So eclipses, the cycle of day and night, um, like different things like that is really neat. Um, well, and doesn't the Creek have a similar legend uh, of the fiery chariot that rides across the, the morning sky? Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Uh, which god was that? I'm trying to remember. Um, was that Apollo? Or who was that? It could be Apollo. I could be wrong about that. Um, well, yeah, the Greeks have even a similar legend, like I was saying, of, uh, of the fiery chariot that goes across the morning sky. Yeah. So, again, it's based on the cultural developments and the fact that there's, I think there's a basic core that connects all of these because they did arise all in the same geographic area. So, I mean, it would make yeah. sense. So. Um, yeah, which it's widely believed that a lot of, that all of the modern day cultures and stuff originated originally in Mesopotamia. Um, there right. are Norse, so in Norse, the mythology and the beginning of it, basically it's, it's not like Greek where there's nothing other than things just appeared 
Um, there wasn't primordial chaos or anything like that. Basically, in Norse mythology, there is a giant named Ymir, and he just kind of hangs out. Um, he has a wife, I believe, who I can't remember the name of, and then some children. His children end up murdering him and causing mountains to appear and everything like that. So imagine it's just a flat green earth, maybe some trees, and then once Ymir is dead and his blood and his bones and everything cause the world to become how it is. Um, if you really look into it, it seems like if you don't look at it literally and take it with a little bit of a grain of salt, it could see you can see it more as a migration through areas. It starts off very kind of hilly and green, which once again you can think of Mesopotamia. Right. And then they Tigris Euphrates. They they travel hundreds of miles to get to Scandinavia. And by the time they get there, it's cold, it's chilly, it's very kind of um, frigid, uh, which if you look at the beginning of how Norse mythology begins, you can kind of see how that could be what they were talking about. Um, right. I mean, it, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Because a lot of, because obviously Norse very um, vocal, everything is passed down orally. Um, they had very little documentation, which is why we don't know very much about them. So it is possible that the story was originally they just walked some time, but because it took them generations to get there, by the time they got there, it got skewed um, right. or developed, delved into something else or anything like that. Um, and I think that's another concept that's interesting, the, the tradition of oral tradition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of sounds that weird, but... The, yeah, yeah, I got the, <laughs> the fact that uh, everything was passed down by word of mouth. And if you look at the the people actually use oral tradition, it's a lot of these people that are moving around a lot. It's a lot of like the seafaring yeah. civilizations. Uh, the Jews were the same when they were traveling across the Sinai for the 40 years, as the Bible describes them. And uh, the fact that uh, they use oral tradition, a lot of these... Uh, mobile tribes also reflects their culture because that was the only way they could could remember everything. They didn't have the extra room to be able to write stuff like that down because uh, everything had to serve multiple purposes. Yeah. And so that, I think that's another interesting thing. Like I said, the, the oral tradition and the fact that uh, it was used heavily by a lot of these people and uh, people groups that were, that were moving around a lot. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's very interesting to look into how kind of oral traditions could have like kind of developed into modern day cultures. Um, right. Because you know if you take a culture that is well, if you, it's like that game that people occasionally play, where you tell them a story and then they change one part of telephone, it. Telephone, right? Yeah, telephone. That's the yeah. name of it. It's very similar concept to that. However, it could also be that that's legitimately what happened. Um, Obviously, probably not yeah, to the sure. extent they're saying it, people are known to exaggerate things. However, it's also known that people back in those days exaggerated less than now. Um, but also, like, lack of modern technology, they could also just not understand what happened. Um, right. Like, for instance, the cycle of day and night. We now know that, you know, the Earth rotates around the sun, causing, and the Earth spins, causing day and night. Um but they also believe they believed that, um, of course, they knew the Earth was round. I'm not saying that they thought it was flat, but they thought that whether or not 
a god was causing the sun to move across the sky or whatever. Right. That's again, what they believe. Like I said, mythology is their way of explaining these natural phenomena, yeah. so they couldn't explain otherwise. Um, which, you know, they, at the time, they weren't really the most developed in technology. I mean, at that point, uh, what what? I'm so bad with names. What is the Greek guy who invented basically modern medicine named? Um, uh, Hermes, right? No, 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 no. It starts with an H, though. Um, it's not Hermes. No, no, no. Hermes is the the messenger god. Right. I thought he was also it's not a god, god. Of medicine, though, because that's when you have the. No, no, no I'm not talking about a god of medicine. I'm talking about an actual Greek person. Um, oh. The geez. well-known healer. I forgot his name. Yeah, However, I'm trying to remember. I can't think of it now. He basically went, "Hey, you know medicine? I think that should be a thing." Um, he, he, he was one of my favorite stories. I don't know. I read about him a ton. Right. I no, I think I know what you're talking about. I just can't think of it either. Um, but he basically went, uh, stop sacrificing your child to the gods to get your father's medicine healed. He went, get a band aid. Like he, he invented the idea of actually for using first aid. Um, Obviously, due to um, technological not really being as advanced as it could be, um, or not as it could be, technology not being very advanced, first aid obviously still had a lot of issues, but it was literally better than sitting there and sacrificing a goat to save your son's life. Um, They believed it would work, and sometimes it would because um, either the infection cleared by itself or something else happened and they believed it was a miracle or something. Um, However... First aid was not a thing at the time, um, except for maybe maybe put hands on the bloody thing to stop the blood from coming out. That might have been a thing, right? Um, I think just stuff stuff like that is just very interesting to me. Um, I think religion and mythologies even influenced medicine though for a long time as well, because uh, even the whole idea of bloodletting that lasted forever was oh, to yeah. let out like the sins and yeah. the, um, the disease that was inflicting the body. There was, I know that was used to like the 1700s. Yeah. 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 Um, there was a like ice age era ish, um, medical thing where if say you were my tribe mate and he had, um, like evil spirits in him or whatever, I used right. quotations there since you guys can't see me. But um but the they would take a rock and basically punch a hole in your skull um to let the evil spirits out. Um right. which one can think, you know, that would kind that of sense. even yeah, building off that I think I think it was Incans that used a similar concept of uh, of putting that hole Mm-hmm. In, in the head to uh, to let out the evil spirits, like you said. Which, you know, might have some medical issues in the future. Maybe. Brain damage, <laughs> blood loss. Yeah, I'm sure it's fine, though. <laughs> I'm sure it didn't have, like, a 90% mortality rate. Right. Um, but um, I just, like, medicine in general has evolved so much because of culture and religion and beliefs um, that it, it, it's kind of amazing. Um natural remedy remedies were used by druidic tribes um whether that be like healing plants um straight up drugs like opium um like the lotus eaters did um except not for pleasure um opium was originally used as a medical resource as uh similar to how alcohol is used as a um 
kind of pain stopper. Um, it was used as a way for people to, you know, not feel the pain and die of shock. Um, Sorry for the interruption of the podcast, but I just want to put this plug in here for Royal Family Kids Camp Belvedere number 242, which is a summer camp that I've been a part of for a while now and which is a summer camp for foster kids, giving them a week to grow and experience love in the presence of God. So essentially what we do is we go camping with them. We do uh, a ton of activities through the week that just help to inspire them. And uh, because they have such hard lives, we dedicate this one week to making it the best week of their entire year. What I'm asking is that you please consider supporting this camp as it means a lot to me, and you can support them by going to their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash RFKC Belvedere forward slash. Thank you. Sorry for the interruption of the podcast, but I just wanted to put this plug in here for two authors I know, Michael LeBourne and Braden Pierce, who have just come out with their book, Taste and See It, which has been hitting the market and claims to provide the necessary tools to help you overcome temptation. The person they quoted on the back, Jordan Fralin, a person that I also know, states that if you feel stuck in any sort of destructive or habitual pattern of sin, this book is for you. You're already free. You just might not know it yet. It's time to step out of the darkness and into the light of Jesus's love for you. Definitely check out the link to this book in the description. And now back to the podcast. All right. Sorry about the, the interruption of the podcast there, but uh, getting right back into it. You were talking about the Druids? Yeah. So there's like Druidic tribes that would use natural remedies as a way to heal people or uh, things like that. So um, natural remedies have been a thing for forever, ever since that guy that I can't remember the name of, and I feel really bad about it. Yeah. I, um, I can't think of it. <laughs> I would look it up, but it, but it doesn't matter that much. Uh, I'm sure he's the father of medicine. I'm sure somebody knows what I'm talking about. Right. Um, if you look up Father of Medicine, you'll know, you'll figure out what I'm talking Greek about. Father of Medicine. Um, but uh, Druidic tribes would use um, opium, like the Lotus Eaters, but not to the extent, to help maintain um, like consciousness during surgery or things like that. So if you're chopping off somebody's arm, that's going to hurt. Right. So and there's still opium. cultures that use similar stuff yeah. for, for consciousness, um, psychedelic drugs and yeah. stuff that... Uh, are supposed to engage uh, spiritual experiences. Yeah, yeah. A lot of um, Native American tribes. Native Americans, that. yeah, um, for sure. They smoke tobacco. Um, I believe uh, there's parts of Indian culture that do mm -hmm. similar things, and uh, that that was that's a huge thing as well. Yeah, spiritual uh, enlightenment. Using psych psychedelic drugs and stuff like that mm -hmm. to define spiritual experience. Yeah, a lot of Native tribes do that. I know a lot of African tribes do that and that right. kind of things. I'm sure Indian too. I'm sure East Asian tribes do it too, but I don't right. know much about them. Um, that's not my area of expertise. Right, it's my Western bias. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I do know that um, also another thing to kind of go off of that is like tattooing. Um, yeah. So like. I have the, a thing about that. Yeah. The Maui right. use like tattoos as a sign of either respect or power or to show different things like that. You know, modern right. day tattooing. The, will the Polynesian people. Yeah. The Maui. That's that stuff too, about. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think Maui's. Uh, specifically Hawaiian people, though, right? Is it? Because Polynesian covers all of the that's Polynesian true. islands. That's true. Um, so it would be both. Polynesian. I was thinking of specifically the mountains. Though. Right, right. Um, but I, I know that it's also a thing in East Asia. Of course, not my area of expertise, so I could be wrong. Um, but I know that it was a thing specifically in the Maui tribe. 
um, where they use it for power, which is similar to modern day things. I think some a lot of people still get tattoos to show either respect towards either a family member or an idea, or they use it as a um, kind of like a way to remember something, right. um, which goes back to the Maui thing where they use it for basically the similar concept as well as marking like who's the leader and that kind of stuff. Um, and they'd also use it for spiritual enlightenment. There were um, certain tribes in Africa I know of that I don't remember their name, sadly, but they would use basically psych psychedelic tattoo ink um, where it's a, very similar to the drug trip thing um, where they try to achieve enlightenment, but through the usage of a tattoo. So it would be a permanent mark on your body um, that also would give you like weird visions because of what the ink they used it was a it was i believe it was a venom from a certain scorpion or something but it was it, it was a very interesting thing that i read about um I, i've never even heard of that. that that is interesting yeah i didn't yeah. realize it was it was it was really interesting um african tribes are known to use like some weird things that um or at least they were modern day i can't speak of but um, for instance, like when the, what is it, Belgians, um, when the Belgians owned the Congo in the Belgian Congo, also known as the Republic of the Congo. Democratic Congo, Republic of the Congo, yeah. Democratic Republic. Um, Democrat. Yeah, well, yeah, we're not getting into politics. Right. Um, <laughs> they, uh, the, at the time, the Belgian Congo was very heavily used as a, uh, basically slave labor for the Belgians um, during the African expansion where mm -hmm. everyone expanded into Africa. Um, and the, the people in the Congo were very um, obviously upset by this. Um, and they would use psychedelic drugs to try to achieve enlightenment to fight off of them, fight off them. So they tried to right. talk to their gods about, um, I, I don't know if it was gods or God, but their religious beliefs um, they would use them to try to find something to fight against them. Right. Some of the Native Americans did. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I was I was going to add on to that actually because uh, we we took a class together, Intro to Archaeology, and uh, we talked about the nativist movements. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff with the Native Americans and how they believed that they needed to reconnect with their gods and go back to the traditional ways in order to fight off the the white settlers and uh, Europeans that were invading into yeah. their territory. Which and so that concept's uh, yeah. universal across many cultures. Which, it, it makes sense. So, say that you were in your home and a man walked into your house um, and decided that he was going to live there now. Um, and whenever, and say that you're, you just went through a major thing, say you changed your clothing or something like that. Um, I'm speaking very loosely here, but um, then whenever you would um, become, or sorry, let me rephrase. Um, so man walks into your house. You just had a big change. So for the Native Americans, it was um, like they were very warlike at the time. They were fighting with each other for resources, that kind of mm -hmm. stuff, land, whatever. Right. Um, they might have – the settlers were already there. So the man was like on your porch basically. Um, the man was giving you things to let you inside. Um, eventually he just walked inside anyway. So you decided that to stop using everything that he gave you and he'll leave, right? Because 
this never happened back whenever you didn't take anything from him. He didn't walk into your house. So if you stop using stuff from him, he'll leave, right? That makes sense. So that's kind of the, the, the general idea they no, used no against um, the settlers that came and stole the property. Um, right. So it, it makes sense why they did it um, and stuff like that. But it's just it's interesting that that's kind of the reaction that most tribes have when coming into contact with typically European settlers. Um, right, and uh, just playing devil's advocate here, uh, there's actually a, an example to the contrary of that, whereas uh, there's an Aztec legend of the god Quasicodal who uh, had bestowed upon uh, the, the Aztecs uh, the knowledge of science, mathematics, uh, agriculture, and uh, even influenced the ideas for the Aztec calendar to uh, the Aztec people, and then one day just mysteriously leaves. But uh, what's interesting about this story is uh, he says he's going to come back. But they also describe him as uh, being like a, a white, uh, almost vibrant man in appearance. And so the interesting part is that uh, when, when 1400s roll around and America starts being colonized by Europeans, uh, Hernan Cortez comes over and uh, the, the Aztecs actually think he's quasi-cultal. And so <laughs> the, the opposite is true, too, Yeah. that, uh, that based off religious beliefs that uh, – that ultimately harmed them by by letting them in because they thought it was something that truly wasn't. Yeah. Which once again, shape, you know, religious beliefs can shape how you interact with other people and stuff like that. Like for instance, that right. um, Native Americans in North America didn't really like the white settlers at first. Um, whereas, of course, what he was just talking about, they had a more accepting approach because of their religious beliefs. Um, so it's just stuff like that is just very interesting to me. I think. Yeah, for sure. I think the application of mythology history like they definitely work all together yeah um i just i think that that's just the coolest thing um and i mean like as an archaeologist if you're studying human civilization you can't just choose to study one over the other because they all interact with each other ultimately mythology influences culture and the culture influences mythology every human aspect of, of of culture and uh human experience in general is influenced by an intertwining web yeah. of culture, mythology, uh, just about everything, uh, lifestyle, all of it. Yeah, they all kind of tie in, whether or not it's loosely or not, like, for instance, the Norse and the Greeks, once again, for the 17th time. Right. They um, have ideas that are similar. They have ideas that are very different. Um, but, like, they still, of course, are, they both originate at the same time. They're just different people that experience different things that have different outlooks because of it. Um, just cultures adapt based off of their surroundings. So, right. Um, and, uh, building off that, actually, I want to get into another concept. Uh, you were talking about how, uh, ge- geography influences culture about, I want to talk about how, uh, humans influence geography. So the other side of that, mm-hmm. and, uh, what I'm trying to get to is, uh, the use of like uh, monuments and uh, ceremonial spaces and the importance of those. So right. like uh, even the, the pyramids and the, the building of the Acropolis of Athens and uh, uh, why why these structures were built, what they represent and uh, how they influence mythology and, and culture. Yeah. And so uh, I guess we could get into the pyramids because uh, the pyramids are an interesting example of this with uh, the fact that they were originally just the uh, a, a flat layer of dirt that was placed over a grave and uh as culture developed and uh people began competing within the egyptian society 
uh, the idea was uh, that they would add one more layer just to show that they had a little bit more power. <laughs> and so those layers kept getting stacked on top of each other. And uh, because those layers kept getting stacked on top of each other over uh, thousands of years, they eventually formed the pyramids as we know them, which was the ultimate example from, from Khufu of uh, why his grave was superior to everybody else. <laughs> it's, yeah. And they're, they're li quite literally step pyramids because if you look at the earliest pyramids, that's literally what they are. They're these mounds of dirt that were built on top of each other and then eventually perfected into the shape of the pyramid. Oh, so similar to the... Similar to that, but a North American example, the Cohokian Mounds. Right, the, the Cohokian mound, Mounds. The right. different mountain, the, the burial mounds where they bury mass graves. Obviously not to say that my my dead body is cooler than yours, um, but similar concept in building large mounds to house the dead, um, affecting geography itself to bury um, people that have either died in the war or whatever. Um, right. And I think uh, another, the other importance of that is uh, the idea that by building it taller and taller, that they're actually getting closer to the gods, which I thought were were in the heavens, yeah. which were in the sky. Somewhere. And so the builder you bit, the the builder you built your structures essentially, the, the closer they thought you, they, they that they were giving, getting to heaven. Yeah, it's a very, very cool idea. Yeah, um, so that's interesting as well. Or of course, their version of heaven. Um, right, right. Because, of course, heaven isn't always up. Right, it's not a universal concept. Right? Yeah. It is, but expressed differently through uh, yeah. different cultures. Like Greek and Hades, there isn't up, there's is down. <laughs> right. Um, well, I guess it's up and down, but still. You just got to be like an insane Greek hero. Yeah, yeah. It's not that hard. Just, like, be a really cool battle guy. <laughs> um, be literally Hercules. Like, um, But, yeah, I think things like... It's just, I think that a lot of cultures tie in so well, especially like the pyramids. Um, the Egyptians and the Greeks had a lot of interaction because they existed at the same time. Um, the river Styx is an example between them. Um, both of them are rivers that transport the dead. It's more important to the Egyptians because the Egyptians, I imagine, coined the idea. Right, well, and you got to take into the fact that they were quite literally a river culture. The, the river yeah, Nile yeah. was the lifeblood. That's, yeah. that's why it's literally called the lifeblood of Egypt. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's where they got, that's where they grew their food. That's where they did basically everything. Um, whereas the Greeks, even if you kind of look at it from a different angle, the Greek version of the river Styx can be seen as a means of transportation. Which makes me think, how, how did the people from Greece get there? Is it possible that they came across the Nile? On these boats, right. And then came to where Greece is. Um, or is the river Styx supposed to symbolize the Nile River flowing down? So would you flow up the Nile River and down towards Central Africa? Um, which, I don't know, I just think that that's kind of interesting because the river Styx is meant to symbolize, or isn't meant, the Nile River is meant to symbolize the River Styx, um, which is just really um, interesting. It's interesting that they both overlap, um, which it makes sense that they both overlap, but it's interesting nonetheless. Um, well, and talking about uh, like seafaring and uh, traveling on rivers and stuff, well, there was a whole culture that was quite literally a seafaring culture, you know, that was Phoenicians who uh, literally were essentially island hoppers throughout the Mediterranean. And because of that lifestyle, they ultimately, uh, a lot of their gods 
were meant to protect them on these seafaring journeys. So there was a goddess to need that they would put on the masts of their, their sail ships essentially. And uh, she was meant to uh, protect them as they, as they crossed the waters. Oh, that's really so I, find, I find that interesting as well. Yeah. Which then again shows that where you live, how you live depicts your culture and religion. Um, because right. like, for instance, a, that's a really good example of it, but also the Roman and Greek versions of the gods they're not technically the same people, but everyone knows they're technically the same people. Um, of course, the, the Roman gods are named after, or the planets are named after the Roman gods. The Greeks are the predecessor. Um, right, yeah, the Romans heavily borrowed from them. Yeah. Borrowed from the Greeks when they invaded. So, yeah, the Romans come in from Italy to Greece, and they invade and steal a lot of their culture and religion. Um, and because of that, they also twist a little bit of the gods, so their version of Ares is a lot more warlike, even though Ares is already the god of war. Um, every version of their gods is kind of skewed from the original Greek version, where the original Greek version is more kind of posh and um, kind of, what's the word, um, more, I guess, royal. Um, the Roman is more kind of general in the military rather than queen of whatever country. Um, so they, they take the gods and they make them like supreme commanders of the army rather than leaders in a republic, um, which is, it, once again, it shows an example of how religion can change because the Romans were very warlike. I mean, they freaking salted Carthage. Um, <laughs> like if you're going, like there's one thing between raiding a city and there's another thing between raiding a city, yeah. burning it to the ground, salting the ground so nothing else can grow there. Like... That is a ultimate like. If, if you guys don't know the story of the Roman invasion of Carthage, definitely look it up. Yeah, it's, it's, very, it's a good story. It's very funny. <laughs> um, goodness. Um, yeah, for sure. And uh, I think a lot of that has to do with like the, the esoteric concept of uh, as above, as above, so below. That the heavens and uh, the universe reflected what was ultimately uh, created on Earth and uh, what the humans were practicing on Earth. And so uh, a lot of those monuments and stuff that they built were made to reflect the sky. If you think of like, uh, and this is on the other side of the ocean, not not in Egypt, but uh, in uh, South America with the Incas, the, the Nazca lines, they were literally created for the gods because the only way that you could see what the, the shapes were, were if you are actually in the sky and looking down at them. So it, it reflects this concept of uh, as above, so below that, uh, the, the, the people of Earth are trying to reconnect with the, the gods in the, in the heavens. And by doing so, they're making these uh, stuff like the Nazca lines that can only be seen from the sky and these towering structures that they're using to try to get closer to the heavens, like the pyramids, which are used not just in Egypt, but with the ziggurats in Mesopotamia and yeah. the, the pyramids in uh, Meso in South America. Yeah. Um, which I think is very interesting that people associate good with up and bad with down um which is interesting because i guess it would make sense if you look at it from kind of the hierarchy of how societies people believe society or view societies so you have the the typically the kings right yeah the, the kings above the, the commoners and you have the commoners at the bottom um or who, whatever the largest population is if you're in sparta it's the there's weird slaves and then the king at the top right um but I think it's it's interesting that we apply that to the gods as well as everything else. 
we view ourselves at the bottom because we're merely human um, with the gods being above us. But it's interesting that like the Greek, like the Greek pantheon, for example, Mount Olympus. It gets extreme when uh, the Pharaoh actually himself represents a god. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like even uh, the prefixes are, no, it's the suffixes in uh, Akhenaten and Atu. Ankh Amun, uh, Akhenaten is Aten at the end, which is the sun god, which he was the heretical pharaoh, changed Egyptians' religion to monotheism and worship of the sun god Aten. So, like, quite literally, why he adopted that name oh, to become cool. god himself and, and influence the culture like yeah. that. That's really cool. I didn't know that. Um, but yeah, like Mount Olympus, literally, it's a mountain. Mountains are high up. So, like, you know, I think there's actually a, a, an actual Mount Olympus, so I should see yeah. the, the human connection. Um, they bu- yeah, they with, built it uh, as with a mythology, like, um, a quite literal example. And like typically, temples in Greek religions are built on mountains or high up, especially the Temple of Apollo, uh, Mount Olympus right. itself, that kind of stuff. And like um, you said, I think that reflects the hierarchy of society. Yeah. The only group that I know that doesn't do that is the Norse. Um, really? The Norse. The Norse gods aren't immune to death. A lot of them die. I think they're reborn. I mean, but they we got uh, demigods and stuff in a, in Greek legend too. Yes, and but, even Osiris, I think, was fully god. Yes, still, there's legends of yeah. him dying in a constant cycle. So, but uh, the Norse believed that that's interesting. Odin fought with them whenever they went into battle, like literally, literally fought with them, not as a divine being, but as a soldier. Um, well, berserkers are a Things that Vikings are known for. They're the guys that go crazy and like just rip and tear people to shreds. Um, But in reality, they were basically super drugged up dudes um, that were told to just murder. Um, They were part of a clan called the Clan of the Bear. Um, And because obviously clans, Norse are are very fond of their clans and halls. Mm -hmm. Um, Each god had a hall. Typically, each god also had a clan. The Clan of the Bear was not associated with a god or anything. They were associated with war and raiding. Um, they were extremely um, raid heavy. They were extremely. Um, it might have been actually the clan of the boar, not the bear. It's one of the two. Um, but regardless, they were super warlike. They like murdered and killed. But they would take a. There was a plant that they used that was um, very. It would induce like a um, another hallucinogen. It's similar to, it's a hallucinogen, but it also has properties that make you, um, similar to opium, it would negate pain, and it would increase hostility. Um, so they'd take it before they went to battle, believing it was a gift from somebody. I, I, could, I can't remember who it was. Um, and they would take it and go into a rage state, which would cause them to murder tons of people, um, including other Vikings. Um anybody that got near them, including their own clan members, they eventually basically killed themselves because of they would, they, it, it was also very addictive. So they take it when they're not raiding and then kill each other. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that, that was a very interesting thing. Um, and they kind of shows that, um, once again, the whole tying in society to religion and the fact that, um, the fact that they believed that Odin fought with them. They believed that those people basically were sons of Odin or something like that. It could have. I think that's, 
proper. I could be incorrect about that. I'm like 80% sure I'm probably incorrect. But I haven't um, delved into North, North mythology nearly enough yeah. to, to know for sure. So. Um, but they believed that they were like basically Odin incarnate. So rather than it, – it's, it's like a possession sort of thing is what they believed. Um, or they would look for signs. So um, like if a bird flew past or if um, like a random old man was spotted, they believed it was a sign of Odin and that they were going to win the battle. And typically that would give them a big morale boost. Um, so yeah, they the Norse believed very heavily in that the gods were with them at all times on Earth rather than um, – like how the gods of Greek are, where they sit above them, basically all the time. Um, which is just, I, I just thought that's super interesting because I don't yeah, really sure. know other cultures that do that. Like the Native Americans have like spiritual beasts and things that roam with them, and they believe a lot of that stuff's animism, right? Yeah, um, they believe that like um, like the bears, everything meant something spiritual, which is a similar concept, but it, it wasn't other people. Their gods weren't physically with them. Right. Um, their gods sent messenger birds or whatever. Um, but they weren't physically with them, which is just, I think, once again, I think that ties into the whole geography, um, culture aspect. Geography and culture influencing mythology for sure. Um, well, uh, we're nearing the, the end of our time here. So, uh, you have, uh, any final comments or questions or thoughts for the, um, for the podcast? Not really. I enjoy talking about this. Yes, for sure. I actually <laughs> love this subject. We can do a just an entire podcast on this alone. Yeah. There's a there's a huge uh, amount of uh, subject matter that we can dive into, but uh, we don't have so much time. But uh, I, I definitely enjoyed this episode. I I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It was uh, a lot of stuff that uh, we went over. So uh, if you thought any of those concepts were interesting, comment on the Facebook page. Uh, uh, let us know what you think. And uh, want to thank you for uh, being on the podcast with us. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So uh, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll, we'll hop right into the conclusion. Now. All right, we'll wrap this up, and then next week we'll have another episode on a historical subject, and uh, this will likely be a – I don't know, actually. I'm, I'm thinking it might be an interview that I've been trying to arrange, but uh, I'll, I'll let you guys know when that time goes around. But uh, as usual, I'd like to give a shout-out to Anchor, our podcasting service. That's been a miracle in making this episode. And I really couldn't have done it without it. If you, if you guys ever want to make your own podcast, this is a great service to do that, and I highly recommend it. But more importantly, I'd like to give a shout-out to you guys as my listeners as we continue to embark on this podcast. And for those of you who have liked and been following the Facebook page, community page, and our Twitter as we continue to grow. And uh, our numbers have, uh, have grown quite a bit. Uh, since the beginning of the podcast, and I, I really appreciate your guys' support, and uh, it's really you guys that uh, make this podcast roll, and uh, that keeps it going, so I appreciate all the support. But uh, all that being said, I would like to also say uh, thank you to Ethan for uh, joining us today and talking about uh, symbology and mythology and civilization with us, so thank you, Ethan. Thank you. Awesome. And uh, with all that being said, thanks, guys, and have a nice week. Carpe diem.